This episode is powered by Safety FM. The Crucial Talks Podcast with your host, Mike Saddam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crucial Talks Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Saddam. If you could do me a quick favor and rate the podcast, subscribe to it, give it a quick review, all that stuff helps us a lot when we're really trying to grow this community of people that want to understand more about what drives them and what drives others. Now, if you have any questions for me, you can always reach out to me by visiting www.crucialtalks.com or look me up on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Now, today's episode is a little bit special. Now, as you've heard in the last couple of episodes, we've been talking to people that might be business owners, they might be consultants, they might be folks that have written books. And what's interesting about this next guest is he's pretty much done all of that stuff because today we get to speak with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Now, Glenn is a psychologist, And he was also the CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm. So he's ran a business and he's been a veteran psychologist. But Glenn is probably now most well known for the work he has done on self-transformation and specifically how he helps people that are overweight and obsessed with food. He helps them really transform their lives. So based on his work with patients, he also conducted a research program with more than 40,000 participants. And he wrote a book called Never binge again, stop overeating and binge eating and reprogram yourself to think like a permanently thin person on the food plan of your choice. Now, that's a mouthful for a title, but there's no pun intended there. So when I looked into Glenn, I really thought it would be interesting to talk with him because I wanted to pick his brain about self-transformation and what he has found that has really helped people. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Glenn Livingston to the Crucial Talks podcast. How are you today, Glenn? I'm great. I'm looking forward to talking to you. This is going to be fun, I think, because you have so much different experiences. I mean, not only with everything you've done, but really everything you're doing now that's wrapped around the book, Never Binge Again. So before we kind of get into that and all the stuff you're doing with clients and people you're helping nowadays... How did you get here? What was your journey like to get you from where you were to where you're at now, having written this book and having the ability to help so many people? Well, you know, the book was kind of a surprise. It's never something I really planned. As a matter of fact, I specifically was staying away from working with eating disorders because I had one myself when I was 17. I figured out that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat virtually anything I wanted to. Six or 7,000 calories a day, no problem. I'm 6'4", I'm pretty muscular. And so if I worked out, I could just eat everything. Boxes of brownies, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars, pizza, you know, whole pizzas, two pizzas, (laughs) um, whatever you can imagine. And I did not think that was a problem. I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic. I spent an awful lot of time working out, a a lot of time eating, a lot of time recovering from eating, But I wasn't fat, and that's all I cared about, and I was happy. When I got to be 22 or 23 years old, though, and I was in graduate school, and I was married, and I was commuting two and a half hours a day, I I just had all these responsibilities, and I couldn't work out like that. I could maybe do a half hour twice a week. 
but I found that the foods had a life of their own and I couldn't stop thinking about them. I couldn't stop eating them. And I got fatter and fatter and fatter. Not in a straight line. I would get heavy and then I'd lose some weight and then I get heavy and I'd lose some weight and kind of gradually creeped up like a bull market. might creep up in the stock market. And um, being from a family of 17 psychotherapists, I decided that I must have a psychological solution. So I decided this was a purely psychological problem, must have a purely psychological solution. And I went to the best eating disorder specialists and psychologists, and I went to psychiatrists and I took medication, and I um, was very, very bothered by it. What really bothered me was that I wasn't able to be present for my patients and I wasn't able to be present for life. It just didn't sit well with me. I just, I just didn't feel like I was fulfilling my purpose in life. So I went through all this soul-searching journeying, which I don't regret because it was very meaningful, but it didn't help me. There were three things that happened that circled around to have me flip the paradigm. And what I now know and believe is that for people like me, overcoming overeating has more to do with taking a dominant position and it's like capturing and caging a rabid animal or being the alpha wolf in a pack that's being challenged for leadership. And you know, when the alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't say, oh, gee, someone needs a hug. It says, get back in line or I'll kill you. I mean, that's, that's the you know, no prisoners taken kind of attitude that, that works. And I came to that for three reasons. One was that I'd been doing a lot of consulting with big food. And I saw the hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins, sodium. And, and I knew that they were spending millions, if not billions of dollars to engineer this. I knew that it was targeted at hitting our bliss point without giving enough, us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And I knew that billions of dollars more went into advertising it in such a way as to make us believe that we couldn't live without it. And it, most people think advertising doesn't affect them, by the way, but it actually affects them more when they think that because their sales resistance is down. So I knew that. I had just come out of our Reader's Anonymous and I knew they were telling us that we were powerless to resist and we couldn't quit even if we wanted to and the best we could do is abstain one day at a time. So I, I knew these three things and I said, well, these are all really external forces. It doesn't make, doesn't make sense that you can't quit. And I, I looked at the research on addiction. The actual research says that you can quit. And I looked at, um, I looked at their research in, in animal studies on um, what happens when you short circuit the pleasure machinery in our neurology and in mammalian neurology. And if you put an electrode in a mammal's brain in the pleasure center and you let it self-stimulate by pressing a lever, you wire that electrode to a lever, that animal will press that button thousands of times per day to the exclusion of its survival needs. It's like the survival drive has been hijacked. Eh? A nursing mother rat will abandon her pups to press that button thousands of times a day. A, a starving rat will ignore food. It's, it's incredible. It's just, it's almost like their survival needs don't exist. And I started to think, wow, these are very powerful external forces. And I don't think anybody's putting electrodes in our head, but on the other hand, when you can walk out of a McDonald's and see a Burger King across the street in most cities in the country, is it not at least a valid argument that 
we've got these pleasure buttons all over the place. And maybe we've got chemical electrodes going into our brains. So I, I knew all that was happening. And I, I also did this study. I did this 40,000 person study. It took me five years and it was back when internet clicks were cheap. And basically I asked people what foods they struggled with, what, what couldn't they stop eating once they started, and what, um, what was stressing them in their life. And I found three things. I found that people who were stressed at work tended to, tended to run towards salty, crunchy things like pretzels and potato chips. People who were stressed at home tended to run towards soft, chewy things like bagels and bread and pasta or pizza. And people who were stressed at, um, you know, in their love life, where they felt lonely or brokenhearted, they were depressed. They tended to go towards chocolate. And me, I was a chocolate guy. I always started my binge with chocolate. I stopped them with everything else. It's not like I didn't eat all those other things, but they always started with chocolate. And I went and asked my mom. I said, do you know of anything in my upbringing that could have set up this pattern? Because I was still kind of of the mindset that if you knew what match struck the fire, that you'd be able to put out the fire more easily. And mom said, she, first of all, she got a horrible look on her face and she was all embarrassed and humiliated. And I, I said, mom, it doesn't matter. Look, this is 40 years ago. I forgive you. Just try to figure this stuff out. And mom says, well, honey, I'm so sorry. But when you were about one in 1965, dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. We had another one on the way soon. And I was afraid that you were afraid I was going to be a single mom, a widow. With, with two kids and no job, and I just didn't know how I was going to take care of myself and take care of you guys. It was terrifying. At the same time, my dad, your grandfather, he, he just got out of prison, and I was really depressed about that because I adored him my whole life. I adored and idolized him, and he was really guilty. He really did these things, and my whole, I felt like my whole world was coming apart, and I didn't have the wherewithal to hold you and love you and hug you when you came running to me. So I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator or crawling over to the refrigerator. And you'd take out the bottle of Bosco and you'd suck on the bottle and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. And, you know, Mike, if, if this were the movies at that point, my chocolate problem would have been over. Mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and I'd never have a problem again. But my chocolate eating got worse because inside my head, there was this crazy voice. And it went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you know what you rate? Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in her heart. And until we can find the love of our life, get out of this marriage, we're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some. That was really when I realized, along with you know, the insight into what was happening in big food and big advertising and the insight from the study, but that's really when I realized that you can't really love yourself then. And it turns out that the, the, part of the part of the brain that responds to addiction, responds to food addiction in particular, it's the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain does not know love. It, when it looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There is no love there. The human brain, the mammalian brain, it's where the concern for tribe and family and the well-being of others starts to come into place. But that's installed, whether God put it there or evolved, 
it's installed above the reptilian brain for the purpose of I'm bastardizing this and a neurologist would take me to task, but oversimplifying is a better word. It's installed for the purpose of delaying our eat, mate, or kill impulse to first ask, well, what impact will this have on the people that we love? My tribe and my family. And then the neocortex, the most recently evolved part of the brain, it is superior to both of those. And it says, well, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, how is this going to impact your long-term goals, your aspirations, the kind of person you want to be in the world, the contributions you want to make to society, your Know, connection to spirituality or art or music or any of the things we value as uniquely human, that comes from the upper brain. So, of course, you can't love yourself out of an addiction because, I mean, it's loving to give up an addiction, but you can't love yourself out of an addiction when you feel the impulse because the impulse comes from a part of the brain that doesn't know love. So, this is the part where I have to embarrass myself because what I did was decidedly unsophisticated for someone of my stature and someone with all the education and training and you know background that I have. Um, but this is what worked for me, and I had never planned to publish it. I always thought it was just going to be a personal, private thing. I kept the journal for a lot of years to figure it out. But I decided I was going to draw a really bright line between healthy and unhealthy food behavior because I figured if I was going to get a hold of this lizard brain thing, I had to know when it was talking. The only way I could know what it was talking was if I knew that it was trying to get me to do something that was clearly wrong. So I couldn't deal with any ambiguity. It had to be clearly right or clearly wrong. So I started with something like, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. Very bright line. Chocolate bar on a Thursday is a bad thing. That's, um, that's what I did. And I said, well, really, chocolate is kind of like pig slop. And I don't want... I don't want pig slop. My pig wants chocolate. I decided my reptilian brain was going to be my pig. I'd say, I don't want that. My pig dog does. My pig is squealing for its slop. I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And it was just an experiment I did. I, I kind of got it from the rational recovery idea, this book I read about rational recovery, which taught me about the lizard brain and addiction to start with. But I, I said, I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as crude and primitive as that was, that's what started to give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and remember who I was and what my plans were and how I wanted to be around that particular food. And it wasn't a miracle. I didn't get all better right away. But I stopped feeling powerless right away. I felt much less confused. I felt hopeful and enthusiastic. And slowly but surely, I started to make the right choice. And as I made the right choices, I experimented with the rules, and I came up with different categories of rules, and I did progressively better. And, you know, at my height, I was probably 280 pounds and came back down to a normal weight. And my triglycerides were over 1,100, I think. I know I have a test that said 826, but I remember the doctor almost fainting in the chair when he saw a number over 1,000. And, and anyway, my, everything started to resolve. I got rid of my rosacea and my eczema and my psoriasis, like, I started, um, started eating, eating whole foods, plant-based, but my book has nothing to do with that. My book is diet agnostic. You can do it on whatever, whatever diet you want to eat on. And, and um, you know, I got my life back. I kept a journal about all the crazy things the pig said for eight years. And then um, roughly around the time I was getting divorced, I was a minor partner in a publishing company. 
And the CEO said, we need to publish one of our own books so we can prove that we know what we're doing so we can attract better authors. And I said, okay. I said, well, I have this journal. It's kind of weird, but it worked. And the CEO was fat. And he said, I have to read it. And so he read it. He's since lost 86 pounds. And you know, he started down the path. And he said, this is fantastic. We have to publish this. You have to turn it into a book. So we turned it into a book. We put it on Amazon. And you know, we, we kind of know what, our, we know what we're doing with marketing and everything. But it slowly rose to number one on the Kindle free side for weight loss and eating disorders and weight management. And it's more or less stayed there for two and a half years now. Uh, we've got over 2,000, almost 2,000 reviews now. I think we're in 1971 or something. We've got 600,000 copies distributed. It's, um, it's become this massive thing that's influencing hundreds of thousands of people. And my retribution is, is people don't recognize my name, but every now and then they'll recognize me from a video or something like that. And I'll be in a bookstore and they come up to me and they start vaguely pointing at me and they go, pig guy big guy, big guy. So that's, a, that's now my claim to fame. And um, yeah, so I mean, we made the book free on Amazon because it was helping so many people and kind of helped us in our business also to reach more people. And that's what I do now. I, I, when I got divorced, I gave up pretty much everything else. And now I am the pig guy that runs around and teaches people how to put their pig in a cage. And you don't have to call it a pig. You can call it your inner food demon or your inner food enemy or whatever you want to call it. It's just, it's not something cuddly and cute. It's something you want to develop a sense of disdain for and you want to control it like a bodily organ. You, um, you know, it's like your bladder. You get very strong biological urges from your bladder in the middle of a meeting, but you excuse yourself and go to the bathroom and express it in a particular way at a particular time. You don't just drop trial and pee. That's, um, that's what this is like. It's a very strong biological organ that generates very strong urges, but you're in charge. You decide when and where it gets to be expressed. And that's the attitude that you want to cultivate. And Mike, that's my story, man. That's, um, that's where I got to where I am. That's quite the story. And I really, I mean, there's so much just in where you got to where you are today. There's so much to really unpack because there's, there's a number of things I kind of drew out of that. One is the fact that you recognized there was a problem. However, even though, even with your training and your background, you knew there was an issue, but it was still hard to control. And that's something that we do talk to people about on this podcast, which is human beings as decision makers, there's so much emphasis on data and reason. And they figure, hey, if we put out more data that shows why this particular thing is right, people make that decision. But the reality is people aren't making decisions based on the data or rationality or reason. They're really making decisions based on those, those emotions. And that's kind of where I found it very interesting that you talked about the reptilian brain and how that can overcome some of these rational thoughts we might have. But what really makes it interesting to me is that people out there making decisions, even though your book and how you help people is about food and food obsession and, and making the right healthy choices and things like that, people are people. So regardless if they're eating chocolate to suppress some kind of uh, negative feeling or something like that, 
there is within everybody, I think, and I think you alluded to it, something in them that they want to change. And that's where I think the value of your book is. Now, with that being said, and with it being known that that some of these drivers within people are super hard to overcome, what have you found to actually help you start to recognize and overcome these behaviors that you do want to change? So I'm going to go there in one minute. I just want to clarify something that you said first because it's kind of important. Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Um, we don't eat just to numb our emotions. We don't eat just for comfort. And it's important that people know that. Because if your pig tells you that you're only eating to escape the pain or to escape the anxiety or not to feel something you don't want to feel, I mean, it's true. When you overload your digestive system, the nervous system has less ability to conduct the emotions and so you don't feel them as tightly. So there is, there is an anesthetic effect of, of, of overeating on the emotions. But what's equally, if not more important, is that the foods that you go to are really forms of drugs. Most people are not overeating broccoli. Most people are overeating bags and boxes and containers that are manufactured by industry and contain an artificially concentrated source of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for. We, we didn't have chocolate bars on the savannah. We didn't evolve with you know, chips and crisps and pasta and pizza in the, in the tropics. So the, these are concentrated sources of pleasure that actually get you high with food. So you're not just eating to escape, you know, escape the pain, escape the emotions, you're eating for the high. And it's very important that people realize it because it makes it more egodystonic. It makes it something they're less likely to do. If you think you're eating for comfort, then you, the pig can say, oh my goodness, poor me, you don't want to deprive me. I'm so miserable, I'm so unhappy, I need a hug. Um, anyway, that's really important. Well, and so before, and I love that you just said that, because before we move on to something that could help us, what I'm, what I'm hearing you saying, I've heard other people say about things like their cell phone or Facebook or trying to get a bunch of likes on Instagram or some of these other things that might be a little, a little more shallow than the, the deeper feelings we need and want as human beings. But it sounds a lot like what I've heard other people say about social media, that human beings, we really haven't evolved that much. Like the things that are programmed in our brains and how we react and our cognitive ability and the chemical processes that are going on really haven't evolved. And it sounds like what you're saying about some of the high concentrations of the, of the things that are in some of these foods that, uh, that really impact, impact those things within a person I've heard the same thing said about cell phones and Facebook oh, yeah. and things like that. Oh, sure. And what, what they all have in common is that they're concentrated stimuli which present pleasure at a level that we weren't meant to anticipate. It. So take Facebook, for example. Facebook makes it possible for you to get more um, social reinforcement than is really available in nature. There is no way you could have gotten a thousand likes on a post, um, you know, on something that you said in our natural environment. You wouldn't have contact with that many people. And you're having contact with them in an artificial way, which is stripped of the authenticity and meaning that the original contact was really meant to have. Just like, um, 
you know, white sugar is stripped of the original authenticity and meaningful nutrition that a pure sugar cane was meant to, to provide for you. So, um, so it's very similar. And what, what they have in common is the pursuit of intense short-term gratification at the expense of your long-term goals. And you can use the methodology that I talk about in the book. I don't, I don't have as much experience with that because I really concentrate on binge eaters, but I do have clients that come to me with other things like Facebook, for example. You can use that methodology, any place that you can draw a very clear line between healthy and unhealthy behavior. So for example, maybe you'd make a rule that said, I will never open Facebook more than 20 minutes a day. Well, now any voice in your head that suggests that you should go check Facebook more than 20 minutes a day turns out to be your Facebook big. And the things that it says to suggest that it's okay, like, oh, but, you know, there's this really cute woman there who might go out with you and you, even though you checked it this morning, you really need to check again because she's going to, you know, maybe she'll find another guy in the meantime. You say, well, that's pig squeal. And you can look for the, um, there's always a, an aspect of, illogical thinking in pig squeal. So I, I'm, I'm more facile with it in the food arena, so I could tell you that, for example, if the pig says you should eat that chocolate bar now and start tomorrow because you worked out enough and it's not going to make a difference, you're not going to gain weight. Well, the illogical part of that is that what happens in the brain when you indulge is that the groove gets deeper and the addiction gets stronger. So starting tomorrow is going to be harder than starting today. The only time that you can actually begin to quit an addiction is right now. The only time that you can begin to regulate it is right now. I suppose this you would find a similar thing with, um, with Facebook. You would, you would say, well, um, you know, the truth is that if this woman is so jumpy that she's going to lose interest in me if I don't respond to her immediately, then what is that going to pretend for a good relationship with her? That's not the kind of woman that I want to attract at all. Um, therefore, you know, I'm going to stick to my role and, you know, shut up, big, go back to your cage, shut up, Facebook, big, go back to your cage. Well, and I, I find this very interesting what you're saying, because what, and I loved the, the picture you just painted for me, basically said that it's going to be harder to start down this, this path tomorrow than it is today, because the groove is going to get deeper. When I, when you said that, it makes me think that, as people were traveling over these trails or, or driving down this road and the, the rut we're in just gets deeper and deeper and the deeper it gets, the harder it is to get out of it. And as human beings with these behavioral systems, once those behaviors become an ingrained part of, of an identity or role we play, it seems like what you're saying is it, it makes it that much more difficult every Every second you wait or every day that you don't every, every day action. you reinforce it. If you're in a hole, stop digging. I mean, gotcha. that's, that's common sense. If you're in a hole, stop digging. Well then, so what would be, so we're in this, say we are in this rut and we're gonna, we want to get out of it as individuals, as a, as a person listening right now that says, wow, I do have a pig and I am in this rut and I do need to find a way out. What's the first, what's the first step they can take toward that goal? Um, first you need to disempower the squeal that says you've tried so many things and failed every time. So therefore you're going to fail again. 
And you should know, for example, that there's research on people who lose weight for good. And the people who lose weight for good have many more attempts behind them. So weight loss, permanent weight loss appear, appears to be something that requires a multitude of attempts. So if you're trying something new, you're doing the right thing. Secondly, you can tell yourself that, look, just because I drove on one high, highway for a thousand miles in one direction and I didn't take any exits, that has no bearing whatsoever on my ability to take the next one. You know, you, you are, like Sartre said, you, we can remake ourselves at any point. We can choose to be or not to be on any given day. And um, that proves that we have the ability to choose a different path if we want to. What you want to do is make sure you know what that path is. And I like to use the 10-person criteria. So you want a rule which separates healthy from unhealthy behavior in such a way that 10 people who followed you around all day long would totally agree whether you followed the rule or not. Which side of that bright line were you on? So it can be something as simple as, I never put my fork down between bites. It could be, I'll only ever have peanuts at a major league baseball park. Um, it could be something you give up entirely, like I'll never eat chocolate again or I'll never drink again. It could be something that you, um, something that you'll always do. Like I will always start my day with 16 ounces of pure spring water. Whatever it is, and you want to think through where your most troublesome trigger food or behavior is and, and kind of focus around that. Um, so sometimes for people, it's a mindful behavior like I, I will never eat in front of a screen again, or I'll never eat on the telephone again. Um, but you want to figure out what your most troublesome trigger food or behavior is, and then create one rule around that. Declare yourself 100% confident that you're going to follow it, even if you don't feel like that, because that empowers you to assign all of the doubt and uncertainty to your pig. It, and you know, it's, it's, it's a game, it's a mental game, but it what it does is it forces you to identify with the constructive parts of yourself and to feed the, um, you know, to feed those constructive parts in such a way that they develop and that the destructive parts start to wither and die. So then you constantly, whenever you hear a voice in your head that suggests that you should do otherwise, you say, well, that's not me, that's my pig. My, my pig wants to eat chocolate, but I never will again. I'm 100% confident I'll never eat chocolate if they have other ideas. I'm 100% confident I'll never, I'll never go on Facebook more than 20 minutes a day, but my Facebook page has other ideas. You commit to that and you get really curious about, you know, the feels and creative ways that you that you break it. You, um, you either ignore it, and if you know that it is the pig, you don't have to know why it's wrong. You just have to know that it is the pig and therefore it's wrong. Or you can dispute it by looking for the fallacy, logical fallacy. Um, mostly you just ignore it. You would ignore Hannibal Lecter if he was trying to present you with a very convincing argument because no matter whether his PhD is from Harvard or wherever, however intellectually fascinating the argument is, in the end, he's just trying to do something bad. So you know where it's going. You don't have to pay attention to her. And I really, there's so much value in everything you're saying. So the first part of that I really like, because you said, first, you have to disempower, disempower that squeal, right? The thing inside of you kind of telling you to do that thing. 
And I really love it that you said that the research that has been conducted on people that that retain that that weight loss or that healthy lifestyle that they have a lot of attempts that there's a, there is a multitude of attempts to make an impact on their lives and I know that your book and and what you do is focused around around food obsession and things like that but I really think that's valuable for anybody especially I mean even entrepreneurs I mean you have a business background there's so many people out there that have to realize that you may not make it on the first try. And I love that what you said, if you're trying something new, you're doing the right thing. People have to, I think that's valuable for a lot of people to realize sometimes it takes a number of tries, but just keep trying. Fail fast and fail forward. (laughs) I love that. And then you also said, the second thing you said was you can remake yourself at any point and what I'm gathering from you as you were talking about it is you are creating within your mind. I mean, you're, you're talking about constructing and you're talking about deconstructing. And I love what you, what you're saying because the whole, the whole notion of social construction and, and how we can create in our minds because we're human beings, we have this, this ability that no other social animal on the planet has of being able to really construct reality in our minds, even about ourselves. So being able to, to assign these, these negative talks that occur in our head to our pig, I really love that kind of thought process because it's almost like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's almost like what you're doing is you're, you're now taking, and it's almost like you're pulling out little pieces of yourself and pulling out those negative pieces that you want to change and applying them to, to this other other being, other identity, something in you that now you can have control over or talk to or... Or, dis- or, dis- or dismiss. The first thing you want to do is be able to recognize when it's talking. The, the pig's only power is to convince you that it's you, that you really want to do the things that it wants to do. So the first thing you want to be able to do is recognize that it's talking. You don't always have to be able to dispute and disempower it because you can disempower it by ignoring it. The reason that you dispute and look for the logical fallacy is because it's easier to recognize next time it doesn't seem to hold the same um, persuasion and, and appeal if you found the fallacy. If you, if you recognize it as the pig, you don't remember why, that's okay. Just ignore it. Well, and by ignoring it, it's, and it, it's almost like it's, it seems to be a skill you can build. Like, it, you know, the first day you try this, that voice may be super loud, but the more you're able to recognize it, it's like you're, it's almost like you're building a filter. And as you do this more and more, you're starting to be able to filter that thing out easier and easier as you practice. Yep. It's, it's kind of like, it requires a little bit of thinking work on what you really define as healthy behavior for yourself and really pay attention to how you're trying to talk yourself out of it. But it, it's a little bit like learning how to drive. You have to spend a couple of months learning the rules of the road and you know, carefully studying and paying a little more attention than you do later on. But once you really know it, it fades into the background. Most people can drive while they're talking on the telephone or kind of daydreaming or enjoying the view. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be an intrusive, burdensome part of your life to keep the pig under control. It's just... It'll play around with some rules for a while until you find the right rules. And 
then the pig is just in the cage, and, and you become a different kind of person. Rather than thinking of, oh my God, I can never have chocolate again, you ask yourself, could I become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate? And it's not all difference, but it's actually much easier to adopt it as part of your character than to white-knuckle following the rule. And uh, one of the reasons for that is that character trumps willpower because it makes your food decisions for you. If I'm someone who eats chocolate 10% of the time, I don't very clearly define what that 10% of the time is. And every time I'm in front of a chocolate bar, I have to make another food decision. Turns out that willpower is a fatigable muscle. It's kind of like gas in the tank. They get so much every day. And every time you make a food decision, you're wearing it down. So what you want to do instead is make it a part of your character when you tell never eat chocolate again. Or even if you say, only ever have chocolate on the last weekend of the calendar month, you've made all your chocolate decisions and you no longer have to wear down your willpower all month long. A lot of people find that things they couldn't control beforehand when they're very specific about it like that, they can do it afterwards. They become a different kind of person. Well, and we've talked a lot about people as individuals and self-transformation. Now, as we wrap up this this episode of the podcast, what I'd like to do is talk to you a little bit about all the other stuff you're doing that that pretty much surrounds this book. Because people are, that are listening, I want to tell them that, hey, you can get this book, read it, and start this journey. But what you're doing, there's a lot more to it than that. You have groups, you have your own podcast, you have all of these things that kind of have surrounded this core, which is built off this book. So if we could move from, you know, kind of individual behaviors to what you're seeing in these groups that you help, that you manage, that you have people like, and I think you have like peer groups and stuff like that where people are helping each other. What have you seen in that kind of group dynamic that is helpful for people? And what are some of those things that you're doing that allow people to be accountable to each other or to share stories or to support each other? What are you seeing and what are you doing that really helps people in that realm? You might be surprised to hear that accountability doesn't really work in food addiction. One of the reasons for that is that accountability sends the wrong message to the pig. It says, oh, if it weren't for Joe, then we could pig out. But you're really a dependent little child. If Joe slips up, then, then I've got you. It's, um, what you want to do is cultivate a sense of independence and confidence. The purpose of the groups are for spotting pig squeals that you might not hear. A lot of times people's squeals are not transparent to people and articulating them in front of others can make it easier and faster to see them. We're brainstorming different types of rules that might help you for your particular situation because, um, when you get into the conditional rules, the way that you are, if you think of yourself shooting at a, a bullseye, well, then there are also the rings around the bullseye, like what do you do when you travel? What do you do at a restaurant? What do you do when you're, you know, your spouse is out of control? And having the crowdsource to figure out the, um, you know, the creative ways to implement those rules can be really helpful. And the coaching that we do is helpful to help it, it it's not that you can't do it on your own as a matter of fact i very aggressively trying to help a million people a year regardless of whether they ever give me a dime so that's where the book is free and the podcast is free and there are all sorts of demonstrations and but i never been to 
big red button, you can get all this, and along with a set of proof plan templates. The reason that we have the group is that myself and I have three coaches that work for me, we've, we've heard all the squeals before. When I first started, I thought there would be millions of different ways that everybody's pig could try to convince them. There may be 50. They all repeat. They're all kind of boring and old to us, but they're not boring and old to most people. They're, most people are thrown by their own pig squeals. And so we can recognize them and have the disputation available almost instantaneously, whatever your pig, I'd say. So, so it basically just makes the whole thing faster and better. But you can do it all for free if you're short on and We're not that expensive. Expenses and the real business to run and all that. So um, it all starts at neverbingeagain.com and you could um, click the big red button and up for your bonuses and let's you get started with a little well, and I'll definitely put a link to neverbingeagain.com on the show notes. And like you said, the book is free and there's a ton of information out there. And what I've really, I love what you just got done saying, because I really like the fact you said that I might be surprised to hear that accountability doesn't work in food addiction. And what I find fascinating about that is that it sounds, it's very similar to the notion that, that like compliance or, you know, making workers stick to a strict policy and things like that, what you want people to do is have that behavior ingrained in them. And that's why I like what you said, that you're, you're trying to cultivate a sense of independence and confidence of their behaviors, that they're doing the right thing. Then that, what I, what I also like is you said that these groups spot pig squeals that you, that, that the one person might not hear. And it, that even goes back to a lot of things we've talked about here on the podcast about the fact that if you have a group of people that trust each other, that communicate, that are looking out for each other, they can, they can find things that one person can't. Because really, I've told people this before, it's hard for a person to see their own mistake or they want to make the mistake, but the person standing next to them might see it. And it really sounds like that is part of what's so valuable about these groups and about the coaching is because you're able to see things. You have a lens built on experience, built on dealing with different people and communicating with different people with different different pig squeals. So through your lens, you're able to help them see things a little bit quicker than maybe they could get you on their own. There you go. That is, I think that's awesome. And I think that's, that's pretty, a pretty good place to kind of leave off on this episode because you've given us so much good info about what you can do in as, as an individual, how you can self-transform, things we can think about, mindfulness, and then the power of groups and what those groups actually bring in a in kind of a positive strength-based way. So for more information, they can go to neverbingeagain.com. And again, that book is free, right? And then all these resources, your podcast and all that can help them start starting on this journey to overcome maybe some of these food obsessions they have. Just one qualification. The book is free in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Um, there's a charge for it in the paperback or audible format. Right, yeah. The digital version is free, which I think is pretty awesome because I've heard it said before that, hey, if you if you love it, sometimes you just give it away. And it, it really comes through that, you have learned from this. It's, it's been beneficial to you. It's been beneficial to thousands of people out there. And we really, uh, I mean, really thank you for coming on the podcast and making this 
resource available to so many people? Because I think not only do people with food obsession, could they learn from it, but I, I've looked at the book, I've been reading it, and I think there's a lot of value in it because it's written by somebody, you, that understands human behavior and what's really driving driving people inside. So I really wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a delight and you were a very good interviewer. Well, thank you very much. And I had a, I had a great time. I learned a lot. And uh, again, everybody out there, take a look at the book. Go to neverbingeagain.com. Take a look at what's on there. There's some great information on there. And if you have a chance, I'd love for you to visit me at crucialtalks.com and connect with me via email, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter, whatever is easiest for you. And again, if you could do me a quick favor, you could share the podcast, leave a review and rate it. I would greatly appreciate it because we have such great interviews with people just like Dr. Glenn Livingston. And the more we can share it, the more people can learn from it. So have a great week. And remember, if we want to understand behavior, we need to understand what drives people. Please review, share, and subscribe to the Crucial Talks podcast. Visit CrucialTalks.com.